Wow, is that loud? Jim's going to take care of that for me, though. I appreciate that, brother. Everybody hopefully had a good uh, weekend, enjoying this beautiful weather, right? This is the last two raw, so you better be enjoying it, right? Because uh, I don't know about you, but I was trying to uh, get all my, get the house ready for winter. Anybody else spend their 70 degree weather trying to get the house ready for winter? Am I the only one? I was like packing up the garage and trying to find a place to put all the patio furniture and doing all these different things and caulking things that needed to be caulked. You guys, hey, I'm ahead of schedule. You guys sound like you got some work still to do. But I am happy that we are all here today. Isn't it a great day when we come together to worship God in spirit and truth? Isn't it a great day uh, when we have this opportunity to celebrate the victory of Jesus? To do this in remembrance of me, meaning to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remember that sacrifice. Because I wonder, I wonder how often we really think about that sacrifice Monday through Saturday. Why is it in our busy schedules when we don't fit more time in to really stop and consider the sacrifice that Jesus made? What it means for our lives. This morning I called an audible. I was going to preach as we're doing the Life of Christ Challenge on, uh, on Sunday morning during our Bible class. For those of you who haven't been attending Bible study, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, our Sunday morning Bible class, we are look, looking at an in-depth study on the life of Christ. It really is a great class. And I was going to preach on the two births, the birth of John, the birth of our Savior. But I decided to call an audible because uh, me and Christy uh, were talking. She was reading the Bible this week, and uh, she came across the passage uh, in Exodus chapter 34 and Exodus chapter 20. And it talks about uh, like a generational curse, if you will. And so we're going to preach on that so I can answer the question for everybody. I answered it for her when she asked, but uh, we started going over. But she goes, but how do you wrap your head around the verses like Ezekiel 18 uh, that talk about how each person will die for their own sins? Uh, and how do we wrap our heads around uh, Exodus 20 and Exodus 34 that talk about, um, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. You know, is there a contradiction in Scripture? How do we uh, understand the, those passages? And so I called an audible, and that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. We're going to look at the generational curse. And I'll have Scripture on the screen behind me. And as we get into this idea of a, it's not called the generational curse, but that's what I call it, that's what I'm calling it, is the generational curse. Because um, think about it. Where do, where do these uh, sayings that we have come into play, right? When you think about the idea of generational relationships, have you guys ever heard, uh, like father, like son, right? Well, that could be used both in a good, in a good sense and a bad sense, amen? We, what about, uh, he's a chip off the old block, right? Where does that come from? The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. You've heard that one, right? That can be used in a positive sense as well as a negative sense. He comes, uh, he comes from good genes. You've heard that one, right? Following in his footsteps. Brethren, there are, uh, there's a behavior pattern that's referred to in some sociological circles called the fifth generation. And what that term essentially means is it's describing a pattern of behavior that is established and passed down to others within the family unit. And when those individuals make the bad pattern their own behaviors, when they make that pattern or those, uh, the, the, what they, how they are influenced, and they take on those influences, they take on what they see, and they now make that lifestyle, those patterns become their own, that evil and the wickedness that they have uh, witnessed becomes their own, brethren, then they are, uh, they are entering in 
to this third and fourth generation of what we're going to talk about here this morning. Uh, when we think about generational uh, relationships, when we think about uh, influences that we have within the family units, how many times, uh, if, if you were to really study it out, and the statistics bear this out for the last 2,000 years and even before that, how many times do what children see in the home affect them as they become adults? Many times, drunks or drunkards, as the scripture would say, oftentimes become that way because that was the example that was set for them uh, in, the, in the family unit. Now, it doesn't mean that every sibling or every child is going to follow down that same path, but there is, uh, the statistics bear it out that many times what you witness in the home is oftentimes generally what becomes as you get older. Have you guys actually thought about a person who has a poor work ethic? Well, where do they learn that poor work ethic from? Many times they see it from other members within the family unit, and then sometimes as they grow older, sometimes they go on to have a poor work ethic. You think about somebody who doesn't manage their money very well. Well, where do they, where do they learn that from? Well, many times it's from growing up in a family that may have had to deal with financial issues or debt problems. And so you look at many of the things that we learn as we're growing up that we're influenced by. You think about those who have anger issues. Uh, where the anger is like the go-to response in, in, in the relationship between the husband and the wife. And then many times, sons or daughters grow up and treat their spouse in a very similar way. Brethren, you go back and you look at uh, people who were abused as children. Oftentimes, no, even though they had to deal with that, uh, the, 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 that pain and that sorrow, that suffering, many of them grow up to abuse their children, uh, grow up to be abusers, whether it be emotional or physical or sexual, whatever the case may be. And it's not, like I said, it's not always the case, but we do see, if you study it out, that there are generational sins. And where does this mindset come from of generational sins? We also want to look at what are these passages actually dealing with in context. So the first one, as we look at the idea of a generational curse, as I'm calling it, the first passage of scripture that we're going to look at on the screen is in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 and 6. I want you to see what this says on the screen behind me. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But show loving kindness to thousands, to those who uh, love me and keep my commandments. Brethren, you look at that one passage of scripture. It's a simple passage of scripture, but what is it as we keep it in context? At this passage in Exodus chapter 20, it's probably about, it's a little less than two months out. Historians believe it was probably about 50 days out that they've just come out of Egypt, and they're still longing for the time when they were in Egypt. They've seen the power of God. They've seen all that God had done for them. They've seen the miracles of God, and yet... Their, their default response is to go back to what they've always known, to go back to the pagan gods, to go back to slavery, to go back to oppression. That is their first response. This passage comes to us in the midst of what? The Ten Commandments. 
And so right after, it comes right after verse 4. Well, what did verse 4 say? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in, or, or in the water under the earth. You shall not make for yourself an idol. That is the verse that proceeds the verses that are on the screen behind me. So what is the point? It indicates that the punishment slash blessings result from disobedience or obedience. The statement recognizes that the passing down of sinful patterns of life from parent to child, and not some type, it's not some type of hereditary thing. So if you look at the screen behind me and you see those verses, let's read it again. You shall not worship them or serve them. It's talking about verse 4, talking about the idols. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I show loving kindness on thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So brethren, when we think about disobedience, whereas disobedience can be maintained for many generations, and it results in uh, hardships, it results in heartache, it results in broken families, we also know that obedience in a single generation can change the course of a family for many, many generations to come. For, for those families who uh, grew up in an atheistic atmosphere, never knowing the love of God, never knowing about his love, his grace, his kindness, never knowing that they are a child uh, that, that was born of God, that God, uh, going all the way back to the first Adam, breathed life into his nostrils, not knowing their history, not knowing their purpose, not knowing why they're here, and then they come to the knowledge of God. And then you have an opportunity to worship God like we're doing this morning in order to praise his great and holy name for all the blessings, for all the love, for all the grace that God has given each of us. Brethren, you can see the difference in those verses behind me because the key to the, uh, the verse, uh, verse 5, it says, to those who hate me. Those who hate me don't keep my commandments. Those who hate me reject who I am. And if you reject who I am, how can then you possibly live uh, a life pleasing in my sight? And so if you uh, are in idolatry, if you are um, living contrary to God, if you raise your children to not believe in God, but re outright reject God and his standard for our lives, what do you think your children are going to grow up in? They're going to grow up in worldliness. What do you think is going to happen to their children's children? So you can see how visiting the iniquity of the fathers, it's not that the children are paying the price for those sins, but there are consequences that are passed down from generation to generation. Some, some will then ask the question, well, is it proper for God to punish the generations? Is it proper for God to, to punish all the souls of the third and the fourth generation for something they did not do? Well, there's a few things that we need to understand here about these type of verses. The first thing to understand is that the son is not directly paying for the father's sin. You need to understand that the son is not paying directly for the father's sins. But do sometimes the sons have to deal with the consequences of the father's sin? Amen, yes. Do sometimes we in our lives have to deal with the consequences of strangers, of the person who gets in a car after a long day of drinking and drives home or drives somewhere else, gets in an accident, and then the innocent party is the, oftentimes the one that pays the price? You see, sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of sin, but we're not actually having to be held eternally responsible for said sin. There's a difference. 
And so that's the first point that we need to understand, is that the sons and the daughters are not directly paying for the sins of the father that are passed down to the third and fourth generation. The second thing we need to understand is that the third and fourth generation on the screen behind me in Exodus 20 and 5 and 6, as well as the thousands, are not literal. Many times when you study out the scriptures, especially like in Revelation and other places, aren't numbers sometimes figurative, right? They're not literal numbers, right? It's not a literal 144,000. It's not a literal thousand years. And so you look at the third and fourth generation, it simply means that because of the idolatry, because of the rejection of God, because of the rejection of his standard, he's going to raise up children who are going to raise up children who are going to raise up children that are going to reject God and his standard. And so the consequence is passed down, but each of those children will be judged on how they lived. And when we stand before God in judgment, we will all give an account of our own very lives. Brethren, when you think about this, we know that it's not literal numbers, third and fourth generation. We're talking about the consequence of the third and fourth generation. We also know that it's not just thousands. It's just, it says love and kindness is not limited to the thousands that are mentioned in, at the end of there in verse 6. Because we know that it's not just thousands. There could be millions and millions and millions of people that are going to take, uh, that are going to be blessed for their, uh, for their uh, love to God, for their um, sacrifice to God for their willingness to uh, be obedient to God in all aspects of their lives. So how do we fit all these passages together? Well, let's look at, we already looked at Exodus chapter 20, but now we also need to look at Jeremiah 31, as well as Ezekiel 18. And the reason why is because this matters, brethren. It matters because God's character is at stake. Because you can't say that God is saying in these verses that he's going to punish the children for the, for the mistakes of the father, but then in other passages say that the father are not going to bear the, sons of, the sins of the sons, and the sons are not going to bear the sins of the father. Is there a contradiction in scripture? Can we trust the scriptures? So you can see why it matters that we have an answer to this question. Is, it matters for the Bible's coherence and how we counsel uh, parents and how we counsel children. These answers to these questions matter. If you look at Jeremiah on the screen behind me in chapter 31 and verse 29 through 30, it says, In those days they will not say again, The fathers have eaten the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. You look at the next passage, Ezekiel 18, 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying that the fathers uh, eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set, a, set on edge? Then he goes on to say, As I live, declares the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son are mine. The soul whose sins will die. And then later on in that chapter, it continues... The person whose sins will die, it says in Ezekiel 18, verse 20 and 21. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon themselves. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and if he observes all of my statutes, practices justice and righteousness, he will surely live, and he shall not die." 
So you look at these passages, uh, like in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you compare that to Exodus chapter 20, and you ask yourself, how is it possible then to pass on sin to the next generation? Well, the key to understanding generational passing on of sin and its consequences is kind of like in the indirect route. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I look at this next passage of Scripture, and it kind of starts to explain it in Exodus chapter 34. The first one was Exodus chapter 20, during the time of the Ten Commandments when that information was being given. Then you fast forward uh, 14 chapters, and it says this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Remember, it's not a literal number. Who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third, uh, on the children, I'm sorry, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the grandchildren, and even on the great-grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So brethren, you look at these passages of scripture, and the passage, this passage right here, it comes two chapters after this little incident that most of you know as the golden calf. Do you guys remember the golden calf? What happened? We see that uh, the children of Israel, they make a covenant with God, do they not? Do they not agree to do all that God had required of them? And then we see that in uh, Exodus chapter 20, when God is giving the Ten Commandments, that th those verses 5 and 6 come directly after verse 4, which is talking about idolatry. And so, brethren, the curse is not something that is directly passed down. We understand that it is the willing acceptance of sin and wickedness that the children have seen in their fathers that is basically they have made it their own. And so the scripture links the curse to the guilty party. Because what does it say right there that it didn't say earlier in uh, chapter 20? It says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so, brethren, we need to make sure that we fully understand the scriptures. We also see a similar passage in Numbers 14 and 18, where it says the Lord is slow to anger, but is abundant in loving kindness, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Brethren, this, is, this passage of scripture you can find throughout the Old Testament. And oftentimes, when it is used, it is dealing with how God is punishing Israel because of the idolatry. And the sins of the father are passed down, not as some hereditary way, not genetically, but because because the children end up taking on the wickedness of the fathers. They take that sin and they make it their own sin. And they live lifestyles that mirror what they have witnessed as they have grown up. That's why I mentioned earlier, many who grow up in homes with various types of addiction, some, many children then go on to have lives of addiction. Why? Because that's what they've seen. And you can see this example and you can point to this example really in many different areas. Uh, uh, ch children who were uh, eyewitness to uh, emotional, physical, and verbal abuse or sexual abuse sometimes grow up to be those same type of abusers. You see these generational type sins that happen. Because when you live a life that rejects God and rejects his will and rejects his standard, then there's no recourse but for the children to be raised up in worldliness. 
and they're going to continue the sins of their father. But it's not that they're paying directly for their father's sin. They're simply dealing with the consequences because now they've made the father's sin their own. And so, brethren, this passage in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18, why is this, all, this passage all of a sudden used again? Well, what was the context of this passage? This passage comes to us after the people of Israel rebel against Moses, rebel against Aaron, rebel against Joshua and Caleb, and God himself. And so Joshua uh, uh, and, and, and Moses, they're pleading with the people of Israel to not rebel, to not reject God. But after, their, after Moses makes this plea to the children of Israel, what do they want to do? If you continue reading on in Numbers 14, they wanted to stone them. They said, we don't care what you say. And they were getting ready to kill Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Aaron. They were getting ready to kill them. And what happens in verse 10? After they came to stone them with stones, it says the Lord suddenly appeared before them. And God was going to smite every single one of those evil Israelites. And yet, what happens? Moses prostrates himself before God and begs for the lives of the people who were about to kill him. But what was this verse us talking about again? They were going to completely reject God, uh, institute a new leader, and they were going to march themselves right back to Egypt and right back into idolatry and slavery. Brethren, you can see that as you look at this, that the generational curse is on everyone who accepts the bad, sinful, wicked behavior as their own. And so the generations to come who experience the penalty, uh, the penalty of the father's sins are those who hate God. And that is the verse that we looked at earlier uh, where it talked about how God is going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If they hate me, they're going to read. That means they reject me. And if they reject me, they're not going to listen and follow and live their lives according to my righteous standard. And so they themselves will be found guilty for their own sins and not for the sins of the Father, even though they're dealing with those consequences. Brethren, you get to another passage of Scripture. We fast forward to the New Testament, and we think about how all of this comes together. And we see uh, what the Apostle Paul had to say to the people of Galatia. And the Apostle Paul says this. He says, all judgment is deserved by the person who is punished. He goes on to say in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows... He will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap the flesh will reap the fl the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will to the spirits reap eternal life. So, brothers and sisters, we think about these things here this morning, and I also want us to think about the expansion of sin within the family unit, because as we think of the expansion of sin in the family unit, we have to understand how families live today. Is it very different than how families were raised and lived in 1500 B.C.? Right? The, the Old Testament started to be written in about 1500 B.C. And well, why is that important? Well, many of them would live on what we would call, I guess in modern day terms, as kind of like a homestead. Right? A homestead is generally a larger piece of property to where they would have farmed, they would have maybe raised livestock, 
They would, have had, they would have had children who were out working in the fields. Many of those children actually got married and had, had their own families, 15, 14, 15, 16 years old. And then they were having children and they were having families. What is the point? Many times there would have been three or four generations living on the same homestead, if you will. And if they're living on the same homestead and you have the patriarch, was the patriarch important in those days? And the matriarch? Well, if the patriarch is a rejecter of God who doesn't live according to God's ways, what do you think he's teaching his children and his children's children and his great-grandchildren? Three or four generations living in the same house on the, on the same land, all working together to provide and to survive, are being influenced by who? The patriarch. And so you can see how, in a sense, the sins of the father are passed down to the third and to the fourth generation. Does that make sense? And so you can see that very easily. Even today, 2,000 years later, from the, uh, from the birth of Christ, we still see in parts of the world where there are generational uh, families who live under the same roof. You see that in many cultures still around the world today. And so, brethren, we look at this information, and we understand that the result was a pattern of behavior that was being displayed by the patriarch, the father, if you will, and it was being influenced upon every uh, younger generation who lived in that, same, uh, in that same homestead. It is a pattern. There was a pattern there of the rejection of God, just like you just seen in Numbers 14, like you've seen in uh, uh, Genesis or uh, Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 34. There's a generational curse that really is spelled out in the Bible. And we have to, we ourselves here in the 21st century, we have to guide, we have to guard against this. Because we could see how these things that I'm talking about this morning still happen today. Where many children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren are affected by the sins of previous generations. Dealing with the consequences of the sins of previous generations. And they themselves then go down that same route. I could, show, I could give you an example in my own family. We have this idea of generational addiction that runs throughout the family, that has caused nothing but pain and sorrow within the family. But guess what? You could stand up and say, enough is enough. And this is going to stop with me. And you could choose to put on God. You could choose to put on the full armor of God. You could choose to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You could choose to be obedient to his commands and live a life that is a, a, live a life filled of righteousness and godliness. Brethren, you can make the choice to stop the generational curse that's happening in your families, and you can be the one that will hopefully set the path for generations to come of godliness and righteousness over wickedness and worldliness. You see, brethren, it only takes one person. It only takes one person to make a decision that no longer am I going to allow the sins of the past and the, the actions and the influence of those who, who have guided me through this the early part of my life, no longer am I going to allow them to affect me by, by adhering to their influence. You see, brethren, think about these things in, in the sense of generational curse upon wicked people. What about the, the times during the, the flood? You guys remember the great flood of Noah's day, right? What, what did God say was going on back then? What did he say about the people? Generation after generation after generation, they are nothing but wicked all the time. It is in their hearts to do evil and wickedness nonstop. And so God said enough is enough. 
But there was a family who lived righteously. There was a man, Noah, who preached for 120 years as a preacher of righteousness, trying to get people to repent, to turn away from the sin in their lives. But there comes a time, brethren, when you're going to see that God is going to say enough is enough. And we know that as we think of this idea of accountability through hereditary, uh, or genetics, if you will, as we look at Exodus 20, as we look at Exodus 34, both passages are condemning the heinous sin of idolatry, which is the complete rejection of God and his law. If you notice in those verses, it said, I, Jehovah, your God, am a jealous God. But the jealous term here, the English word that we use, is, is very, it's really a figure of speech that's used in Scripture. It's not jealous in the sense of human jealousy, which is often, uh, which is often mired in uh, sin, uh, which is often mired in, in hatred, but being the one and living God, he said, no longer am I going to tolerate the worship of these false idols. And in addressing these passages, it must be carefully, carefully observed that idolatry was the chief sin that was causing all the problems. It wasn't your garden variety sin, and it wasn't the little moments of weakness. It was the outright rejection of God. You looked at Numbers 14, when they were ready to kill Moses and them, but God intervened. You've seen how God was going to smite them all and cause Moses to be even a greater nation than them, and yet Moses pled on their behalf. You go back and you look at Exodus 20, it was about idolatry. Exodus 34 was about idolatry that happened two chapters earlier in chapter 32 with the golden calf. And so, brethren, it wasn't just some moments of weakness or some garden variety sin, if you will. And I don't want to make light of sin, but this is talking about flat-out rejection of God and his moral law. And so, brethren, we could see how it would be very easy for generations to go by the wayside of sin and wickedness if they completely reject God and his standard. Brethren, we also want, I want to close out, before I close this out, I want to look at one more thing. There is a thing spelled out in Scripture called national accountability. And if you study out the history of Israel, it's really replete with uh, these examples of how many times they've went into not just normal sin, but idolatry. And when they went into idolatry, what did God do? He caused the people to come and to overtake them, to punish them for their rejection, punish them for the sin, uh, for the complete rejection of God and his standard. We've seen that throughout the history of Israel. The Assyrians overtook the northern kingdom of, uh, uh, of Israel in about 721 B.C. Uh, the Babylonians ravaged the southern kingdom of Judah in four different incursions during, starting in about 586, 587 B.C. And so, brethren, then you think about the ultimate example. When the Hebrew nation... The Jewish people, when they, uh, at the peak, at the zenith of their wickedness, they killed their own Messiah. And we see in Matthew 22 and 7 that the Romans were used as heaven's instrument of judicial punishment. God had used the Romans in order to severely punish his children for the sin of killing his son. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 7, it actually spells out the parable of the wedding feast. Do you guys remember the parable of the wedding feast and how they rejected, uh, they rejected the master? They killed his son. They killed his servants, meaning the prophets. They killed his son, meaning the Messiah. And then God had come and wickedly destroyed those people. What happened in AD 70? God came and he wickedly 
destroyed the Jews for their wickedness. Brethren, historical judgments may be seen all throughout the history of Israel. It can be seen even in our country today. We used to be a country that was thought of as a, as a Christian nation, founded on Christian principles. And now we are a nation that rejects God at every turn. The things that used to be wrong are now right, and the things that used to be right are now wrong. And we have rejected God. We are turning away from God as a nation. And we have to be the people who stand up like the generational curses and say enough is enough. That we are going to stand with God. That we are going to stand on his rule of law. No matter what they call us in society. No matter what political correct firm, uh, term they want us to use. We're going to stand with God and his moral standard. If that means it's contrary to societal standards, then so be it. I would rather stand with God in the judgment than stand with all those who reject God and reject his ways. Amen? Amen. You get to make that choice for yourself. So brethren... There is such a thing as corporate accountability. You've seen it during the flood, but we also have to understand that uh, even in, go back and you think about, as I close this down, the Babylonian uh, conflict, right? The Babylonian siege, if you will. Well, didn't Daniel and Meshach and uh, Shadrach and Abednego, didn't they all get caught up in that? Uh, didn't Ezekiel get caught up in that? And when you think about those men, weren't they good, holy, righteous men? And yet they actually got caught up in the corporate punishments. So just because somebody dies when God had, if, if there were some good Jews, which I know there were during those times of when God came in to judge them, and if, even if you had to deal with the punishment, even if you lost your life, it doesn't mean you're eternally condemned because of the corporate punishment, because you are still judged based on your own merits. When you stand before God, you will stand before God and give an account of your life. Did you accept uh, God? Did you accept his standard? And did you devote your life to living out a life of righteousness and not worldliness? Brethren, as we close this down, we need to make sure that we choose to stop the sinful behavior. We need to choose to stop the, the cycle of sin that is ravaging so many of our families. And it's time to put on the full armor of God, to reject Satan, to reject the devil, and to stand with God. And if you do this, God will stand with you, and the devil will have to flee from you, brethren. So as we close this lesson down, if there's anybody here today who's hearing this message and, and, and you have been struggling in your faith and you know you haven't been living really for God the way that you should, brethren, let us know how we can help you. Let us know how we can pray for you. We have many men and women in this congregation who can help to mentor you, who can help to guide you and lead you. We are supposed to lean on each other, Galatians 6 and 2 tells, or uh, yeah, Galatians 6 and 2, and we are to bear each other's burdens but I can't help you bear your burdens if I don't know about it. And so, brethren, if you need the prayers of the church, let us know how we can help you. But if you're here today and you're not a child of God, but your desire is to become a child of God, to have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then come forward as we stand and